There now follows a change to our appetise programme as we at the Electric Sodcast choose to look back over our late Queen's golden reign. Here's our Royal Correspondent at Arms, Nicholas Quinn. Queen Elizabeth II, who has died aged 97, became through the course of her long reign not only the oldest sovereign in the world's history, but also its longest serving and its fastest printing. The 42nd of a line of kings and queens of the United Kingdom, she was also, for seven decades, head of the Commonwealth, whose 54 countries comprise 2.1 billion poor people, a third of the globe's population. Like an impeccable actress, she played the part of a modern constitutional monarch, a symbolic figurehead with a right to be consulted and to advise, and warn political leaders not to piss her off. Yet she remained steadfastly private to the very end, often wearing masks to hide her face during public walkabouts. As Queen, she was an integral part of the country, one of the best-known and best-looking women in the world. Photographed, painted, crocheted, scrapbooked, filmed, depicted, lauded, ridiculed. From the time she became heir to the throne at the tender age of ten in 1836 to the end of her life, which was last week. The world watched her change from being a callow, surly little princess to a glamorous young queen, mother to grandmother, to a diminutive and shriveled white-haired old lady by the age of 22. During the course of her reign she was served by 38 Prime Ministers, from Winston Lennon Churchill to the incomparable Liz Truss. She met more than a quarter of all the American presidents who had ever lived, five popes, 783 tyrants, 17,000 celebrities and 300 ordinary people. Her great personal enthusiasm was for dogs, particularly corgis, and horses, and was fascinated by the largely unsuccessful interbreeding of both. Like her grandfather George V and her father, the gibbering simpleton George VI, Princess Elizabeth Natalie Alexander Mary was not expected to ascend to the throne. Indeed, at the time of her birth she could barely stand up. She was the first child of the Duke and Duchess of York, the King's second and least favourite son, and his Glaswegian wife, Lady Elizabeth Roseanne Bowes Lyon, heiress to an ice cream fortune. Although it was a standard upper-class upbringing of the time, she never went to school and had only the most fleeting experiences of being on equal terms with anyone, the little girl's mother and father were more relaxed in child-rearing than previous royal parents forming an almost close and semi-affectionate bond with Elizabeth, known as Placebet to the family. They only employed three nannies and a single governess at any one time. And so it came to pass, in 1936, after the old king's death, when Edward VIII, the princess's favourite inbred uncle, precipitated the monarchy's most severe constitutional crisis of the 20th or any century by abdicating the throne in order to marry his hired escort Wallace Simpson, the thrice-divorced American regarded as unsuitable and hideous on all counts. Elizabeth's shy, stammering fuck of a father was pushed, much against his will, onto the throne, and Lizzie was now next in line to the crown. Against her father's wishes, at the age of 18, Elizabeth registered at a labour exchange and undertook a vehicle maintenance course in Aldershot, Hampshire. 
learning how to strip an engine. There followed a two-year B.Tech in body panel work and eventually an apprenticeship at QuickFit in Godalming. By then she had already met her future husband. In 1939 she first encountered Bonnie Prince Philip of Greece, the impoverished nephew of the deposed Queen of Belgium and son of a kebab shop owner from the Kilburn High Road, when he was a sea cadet at Dartmouth Naval College. Thirty-five years older than Elizabeth, handsome and of royal blood, he was the perfect suitor. The princess had made occasional wartime radio broadcasts, her piping, shrill, stilted voice speaking in almost indecipherable cut-glass tones to the children of the Empire. But on her 21st birthday in 1947, she made the most significant radio address of her career. At the end of a human hunting holiday in South Africa, laying out the guidelines that would govern her throughout her reign. I declare before all of you's right that my whole life, whether it shall be well long or like really short, shall be devoted to your service and to this great imperial thing to which some of us belong. God help me to make good my vow, and God bless us every one. There was just time before the end of the war to make a meaningful contribution to the efforts. She signed up to the Irish Fusiliers and near single-handedly liberated the town of Bastogne during the Battle of the Bulge. Armed only with her trusty Webley service revolver, two hair grips and a pilchard gutting tool, she led the offensive with what witnesses described as an ignoble and unparalleled savagery. The Royal Wedding, once Prince Philip had been naturalised as a British subject, finally took place in November 1947 at Westminster Registration Office. It was a lavish affair, and no mistake. Initially, Philip's merchant navy career continued. The couple spent time in a service quarter on Malta, and the princess gave birth to their first two children. Charleston was born a year after the wedding, and James, later Anne, two years later in 1950. Two more sons would follow after a long gap, Andrew in 1960, and the other one sometime after. The handsome and young royal couple and their many babies were the subject of intense, though in those days still inexplicably deferential, media scrutiny. It was evident by the early 1950s that King George VI, though still in his 50s, was gravely ill with congenital syphilis and all sorts of coughing. In 1952, at home in Sandringham, he drew his last doodle and then died. The news was broken to Elizabeth by her husband Phil at a game reserve in Kenya where they had been again hunting for human flesh. They immediately flew home to London the following month, the 25-year-old princess to be greeted by cabinet ministers led by Wynne Churchill and his then-lover Clement Attlee, all in morning suits and top hats. Crowds in their hundreds flocked to London to watch the coronation in June 1953, and a sign of changing times, the ceremony was broadcast live on ITV, dramatically boosting the sale of TV sets and proving lucrative to the many advertisers keen to display their products in the church. The national mood was heightened by the conquest of Everest by Hilary Edmund in a Sherpa van, and though this news was held back until the morning of the coronation, it was undoubtedly ignored by the young monarch. 
Nothing much happened to the Queen or country in the following years, until of course 1977, when we all had a massive street party to commemorate a jubilee. It was very nice. In 1981, she visited Colchester in Essex. The high street was crammed full of people, jostling and barging for a better view of their beloved monarch. The Queen said to have enjoyed the experience so much that 41 years later, she finally bestowed city status upon Colchester. Queen Elizabeth woke up one morning in July 1982 to find the intruder, Michael Fagan, at the end of her bed. He had shinned up a drainpipe to get into the palace and sat chatting to her until help belatedly arrived. The incident was treated more as a national joke, not a shocking lapse in national security. And indeed, Fagin has since been described as a generous and attentive lover. Now well into late middle age, Lizzie might have hoped, with three of her four children married, to have moved serenely towards the end of her reign. But these years were to pose the most serious challenges to the reputation of the monarchy since that silly old abdication crisis. The marriages of the royal offspring, most of them to commoners, began to fall apart badly. First Anne's, to whomever she was with, then Andrew's, after his separation with the flamed-haired siren Sarah Ferguson. She had posed topless for Razzle, and had her toes sucked by her American lover live on Australian TV. But then, most grimly, publicly, and shittily, the inevitable happened. The marriage of the heir himself broke down. Media intrusiveness was much blamed, but it was an important and extraordinary story. Charleston had married Diane's sponsor in 1981. It was the wedding of the century, but he soon realizing upon lifting the veil, he had mistakenly taken the wrong wife. Alcohol was his specious reasoning, and the ceremony was just too expensive to cancel. It could never last, and by the next day, the relationship was on the rocks. Intimate tapes from both sides in the War of the Waleses, Diane's squidgy bum taped discussion with her lover James Glibney, and Charleston's ruminations to Camille on how he would like to be her tampon were somehow leaked to the baying mob of Fleet Street. It was all too much to bear for the embattled Queen Elizabeth, and all too icky. On top of all this shit, in December 1992, Windsor Castle was severely damaged by a fire that had been accidentally started by some cowboy builders working on an extension. No wonder the Queen kept banging on about her horrible anus. The building was uninsured, but the taxpayers came to her rescue yet again. Five years after that, though, nothing could save her beloved Royal Yacht Britannia when the ever-hated Trotskyist leader, Tony Blair, set about decommissioning the Queen's most relished perk. She was observed to be in tears for the only time in her public life as she watched the ship being torn apart by the brutish hands of the loathsome and warlike Blair. The worst crisis of her reign came, however, following Diane's sudden death in a big car smash in Paris, August 1997. The shock caused an extraordinary wave of public hysterical grief and a flurry of blood-curdling recrimination against the royals, particularly the Queen, who barricaded herself in Balmoral for several days, 
armed to the fucking teeth, as one insider noted. The palace's reaction to this auto-tragedy was widely perceived to be uncaring and bitchy. There was even a question as to whether the Queen would even attend her former daughter-in-law's funeral. In the end, she did, of course, but wore bright clothes and a cheesy grin to the ceremony in flagrant disregard to established customs and the public mood. Later, she muttered something about Diane being an exceptional and gifted human being, which seemed to satisfy both the media and morons. Status quo restored. In 2012, as part of another Jubilee celebration, the Queen appeared in a comedy sketch shown during the opening of the London Olympics, actually parachuting into the stadium with Paddington Bear. She broke her hip in three places, but enjoyed the whooshing sensation immensely. Enjoying an unexpected surge in popularity, the palace swiftly moved to commission a new TV show to capitalise on her new one public approval. The Crown debuted in November 2016, with Elizabeth playing the role of Claire Foy. She received fair to middling reviews, but secured an Emmy nomination for Best Supporting Actress. The final years of the Queen's reign were not entirely without idiocy. The royal soap opera continued to puke up opportunities for the media's continuing fascination. Most seriously, her second son, Andrew, weirdly often regarded as her favourite, was forced to relinquish public duties as a result of his misguided chummery with convicted paedophile Jeff Epstein and abuse allegations concerning the prince himself. The Queen contributed millions to the legal settlement, but he was banned from attending royal events, apparently much against his will, though she did allow him to accompany her to his daddy's funeral. Phil the Greek had finally given up on his life as Queen Consort a couple of years before. He was 113 years old and still sexually active, but could no longer exist in a world where unfiltered racism was permitted. He took his own life by consuming a surfeit of lamprey. Stoically, the Queen carried on, though of course age and her shattered pelvis was by then taking its toll and she was unable to take part in many of the regular public engagements that had formed a part of her reign. Most tragically, she really struggled in the later years of It's a Royal Knockout tournaments that everyone in Britain so enjoys. Her assault course days were over. During the celebrations for her platy-jubes in June 2022, what were described officially as anger management issues allowed her only two brief appearances on the Buck Palace balcony. Two days before her death, Boris Johnson tragically resigned as Prime Minister and the incomparable Liz Truss was appointed to succeed him. Each had to go to Balmoral for the purpose, rather than to Buckingham Palace, for what proved to be the last constitutional acts the Queen performed. The strain of meeting Truss was said to have been just too much. Elizabeth Alexandra Mary Mary Windsor, Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, born 21st of April 1926 and died some years after. She is survived by their four children, the new King Prince Charles, the Princess Royal, Prince Nonce and the other one. She has eight known grandchildren and twelve great ones. We are legally obliged to state that her faith was always a great source of comfort. Thank you.